Hello, hello, Femme fans. Before we jump into our awesome interview today, I wanted to ask you a giant favor. We are at the end of 2021, and it is time for end-of-year giving. We've accomplished so much this year to improve women's health through innovation. I am in awe of the incredible companies I meet every single day. You all inspire me to do more to advance the industry. But in order to create more podcast episodes, grow our virtual community, publish more market research, and produce events, we need funding. So I'm asking you, please show your support by making an end-of-year tax-deductible donation at femtechfocus.org. For those that are a monthly donor or have made your end-of-year donation already, thank you from the bottom of my nerdy feminist heart. We couldn't do our work without your support. If you'd like to join their efforts in making a donation yourself, just go to femtechfocus.org. Thanks. I'm Dr. Juliette McClendon, the Director of Medical Affairs at Big Health. And Femtech to me is creating inclusive and scalable solutions that address mental health conditions that disproportionately affect women, especially women of color. Welcome to Femtech Focus with Dr. Brittany Barreto, exploring the past, present, and future of women's health and wellness. Welcome to the Femtech Focus podcast, where we have meaningful and provocative conversations with femtech experts. These academics, doctors, and innovators tell us about the past, present, and future of women's health and wellness. I'm your host, Dr. Brittany Barreto, and today's episode is brought to you by Witham. Witham is a forward-thinking, technology-driven advisory and accounting firm committed to helping companies be more profitable, efficient, and productive in today's complex business environment. Witham's dedicated Femtech team is proud to partner with the members of the Femtech community. Get to know their team at witham.com backslash femtech. Okay, Fem fans, in today's episode, I interviewed Dr. Juliette McClendon, the Director of Medical Affairs at Big Health. Big Health has two mental health apps. The first is called Sleepio, which helps people suffering from insomnia, and the second is Daylight, which supports people with anxiety, both of which disproportionately affect women. Women are twice as likely to be diagnosed with anxiety disorder than men. Women are also twice as likely to have insomnia, the inability to fall asleep and stay asleep. Big Health has raised over $40 million in funding. Their mission is to help millions back to good mental health by providing safe and effective non-drug alternatives for the most common mental health conditions. Big Health's digital therapeutics expand access to the gold standard of care, including behavioral medicine, and they're backed by industry-leading research and randomized controlled trials. They have, you'll listen to this, they have 64 publications, wow, with more than 28,000 participants, including 13 randomized controlled trials. So this is not phony, phony baloney. This is real science using digital therapeutics to help people with their mental health. I love it. To learn more, go to bighealth.com. Enjoy the episode. Hey, Juliet, welcome to the show. Hi, Brittany. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Where are you calling in from today? I'm calling in from right outside of Boston where it's, uh, you know, about 50 degrees. The leaves are turning all different kinds of colors. Um, So it's pretty, but it's cold. Well, that sounds like the <laughs> like the light before it starts to like because I, I grew up in northeast uh yeah northwest, and it gets dark and it gets exactly. cold and um I personally always found myself getting sadder around the holidays and I don't know if it was just because the holidays or but it was also because the sun wasn't out and it was cold um you know and I'm really excited that we are actually going to be talking about mental health um, it's in time for, I think a season where people a lot of times feel sad or anxious or, you know, they're losing sleep. So let's talk about that at a really pertinent time. Is that something that y'all see is that during the holidays, people get sadder? 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's an actual mental health diagnosis that is seasonal affectiveness disorder, um, or I'm sorry, seasonal affective disorder. And so, you know, there are a number of people who actually struggle from clinical levels of symptoms of um, depression and anxiety because of the low levels of light that people get um, and um, sunlight that people get. Um, But beyond that, even if somebody is not, you know, having a clinical diagnosis, absolutely the, the lower levels of sun, the stressors around the holidays, um, you know, around, you know, traveling or preparing a dinner for your family or even interacting with your family, mm-hmm. um, who, you know, most of the year you might m- minimize uh, communication with, you know, uh, all of those things can come together to really um, impact people's mental health and their, just their sense of well-being and stress. And then I also think that because of the pandemic, you know, there is still a lot of, there are a lot of barriers to people being able to see their loved ones and spend time with their loved ones during the holiday. I think it's gotten better this year, but, you know, there's still a lot of isolation and loneliness that can happen around the holidays as well. So um, at Big Health, where I work, we certainly have, we work with a lot of clients and we certainly have a lot asking for webinars around you know, how to manage stress and anxiety, um, around the holidays, um, around this time of year. Well, we're definitely going to get into big health and what it is and how you guys help people. But I have one more quick question about the seasonal, yeah. uh, disorder when you get sad because the lack of sun, is there actually scientific evidence? Like, are we actually a little bit like plants? Like, why is it that the sun makes us happy and the lack of sun makes us sad? Do we know biologically how that works? I think someone knows biologically how that works. It's not me, <laughs> but there certainly are um, treatments um, that people use sometimes like having um, uh, the uh, those blue lights yeah. um, that basically like, you know, bring whatever's in sunlight that helps with our mood and you can have it in your room and like sort of take advantage of that. And um, that can have some positive impacts on mood as well. But I think overall, the other part is that we tend to stay in more when it's cold outside or when it's dark outside. And so we may be getting less physical activity, which can also affect our mood. Um, and, you know, we're not able to necessarily do all of the things that help us, you know, stay in, uh, you know, help relieve our stress and things like that during the winter when things get colder. So, you know, there are a lot of things I think that we can do in terms of like figuring out, you know, what's my spring and summer plan for coping with my feelings, you know, and my mood. And then what's my like when fall winter plan? Um, because sometimes we have to switch it up depending on where we live. Do people actually switch their medications based on the seasons? Sometimes I, I know that there are at times people may start a medication or only take a medication, like an SSRI for like, um, mood, um, support, you know, during the fall and winter, and then may stop taking it like in the the spring and summer. Um, But um, yeah, I mean, certainly the holidays are a time when um, people may be more likely to be going to their doctor for help, experiencing stress, having trouble with sleep, um, and all of those things. Well, let's talk about you. How do you know these things? You know, Um, (laughs) who are you? (laughs) So tell us about your background. What are you trained in? Um, You know, and then a little bit of your personal journey. How did you end up working here for big health? Yeah, totally. So um, I am a clinical psychologist. Um, I trained at Washington University in St. Louis for my PhD in psychology. Um, And there I just learned all of the ins and outs of clinical psychology. So mental health disorders um, and how to treat them. And so that was, that's where my training lies. And then after that, I um, did an internship at a community mental health center where I did hundred percent clinical work, hundred percent of the time, which was really fantastic because during my graduate school experience, um, I was doing some clinical work, but also a lot of research as well. Um, so I had a hundred percent clinical year, which was really eye-opening in terms of, I worked with a very um, low income, seriously mentally ill population um, that had very limited resources. And um, it just opened my eyes to a lot of the gaps and dysfunction within our current mental health care system. Um, And then after that, I actually was at the VA, the Veterans Administration, for a few years, um, working on research that really focused predominantly on the impact of discrimination on the mental health of veterans of color. And so throughout my entire you know, educational life and career, I focused on racial and ethnic health disparities and how um, different factors like, 
different types of stressors like trauma and discrimination and life events can contribute to um, racial and ethnic disparities in mental health outcomes. Um, And so that's what a lot of my research has focused on. And then at the VA, I was able to hone in a little bit more on understanding trauma and the ways in which discrimination and racism and other minority stressors can actually impact trauma and PTSD in different ways. Um, And so that's where a lot of my research focused. So that's sort of like my professional background and and where my expertise lies. In addition, I also, um, you know, was heavily trained in delivering cognitive behavioral therapy for mental disorders, um, which is a form of therapy that really focuses on changing behaviors and changing thinking patterns that are um, perpetuating or maintaining a mental disorder, mental illness. Um, And so I'm heavily trained in that area. And so for me, evidence-based care, mental health care that's based on a, a, you know, significant research evidence base, as well as culturally responsive evidence-based care are two of like my major passions um, and where I've spent a lot of of my, um, especially educational work. Um, So that's me professionally. Mm -hmm. Personally, um, I'm a a woman of color. I'm a black woman. I grew up in the San Francisco Bay area, um, moved to Boston for college. I went to Harvard for my undergrad, um, and then moved to St. Louis and came back. I have an eight-year-old and an almost (laughs) five-year-old. So that's lots of fun. Um, and so I'm, I'm a working mom and, um, uh, and, uh, you know, try to get back to California to visit my family whenever I can. Um, and, yeah, so that's kind of my my overall background. And then my journey to big health was really, um, I, I was in this stage of my life before I joined big health. So I joined them earlier this year as director of medical affairs. Um, and we can talk more about what big health does in a moment, but um, I was in a place where I was looking for something new and I had been asked by big health to consult with them um, in the summer of 2020. Uh, they really wanted to ramp up their mental health equity, you know, focus. And so I was brought in as that expert and I loved working with them so much that when a, this position opened up that I was good fit for, I jumped on the opportunity to join Big Health because we really have scalable solutions for mental health that I was really passionate about that can fill gaps in, in our current healthcare system. So exciting. Um, and when you're doing all of this work in inequity in mental health care, did you find that there was a gender and sex gap as well as racial? Yeah, that's a great question. So a lot of my work um, ended up really focusing on the intersections of gender and race and ethnicity, um, because we know that, of course, there are different ways in which, you know, gender identity is shaped and different ways in which um, you know, people who are um, born male and people who are born female or assigned female at birth or assigned male at birth are sort of socialized and treated in our society. And that is true across the range of race and ethnicity, but within different racial and ethnic groups, it can be different the way that people are socialized. Yeah. And so I, I definitely looked a lot at some of the Um, similarities and differences between men and women in terms of the impact of discrimination on mental health. And so always took an intersectional perspective when doing that work to really understand, um, you know, not only what's going on within the Black population, but like how that differs perhaps between men and women. Um, In addition, at the VA, I was um, a clinician within the women's trauma recovery team there. And I also worked in the women's health sciences division. So a lot of my focus was really on, you know, understanding women veterans who are really at a sort of very small and underserved population um, and understanding um, women veterans of color in particular and the specific needs that they were looking for in terms of their mental health care. Um, and so in that vein, I was able to do um, some uh, racial stress and trauma groups, which was an innovative intervention that was developed by a few um, uh, clinicians at the VA, and I was able to bring it over to my VA and do something that hadn't been done before, which was offer these groups specifically for women identifying veterans. So it was an all women's group where they could really share their experiences, not only as black people or people of color, but also as women and the ways that those, those, um, in identities intersected along with their identity as a veteran as well. And so I absolutely see some of those differences. 
If it sounds like that would be obvious that they would have a women's only group, but that was innovative. Yes, it was. Oh yes. My God. <laughs> well, you know, it's hard in the, among veterans, like, you know, there's a small proportion that are women. Um, and so, you know, and they're all spread out across the country. So it's always kind of challenging to like get women all in one place, women veterans. But what I loved about the Boston VA is that they have a dedicated women's trauma recovery team for in the mental health service. Um, and they have a dedicated women's health, um, like medical service as well. So there's a lot of really awesome and innovative things. And I know it sounds funny that it's innovative to have women's yeah. health, you know, <laughs> but at the VA, which was really created wow. for, you know, men, because mm -hmm. that was the majority of the veteran population. Um, it, it's been very innovative to, to create these um, services that are specifically for women and their needs. Interesting. Well, tell us what is big health? Yes. So um, at big health, we're a digital therapeutics company. Um, for mental health. And we, fo we focus specifically on um, sleep and um, anxiety right now, but sort of sleep and mental health generally. Um, and so what we do is we provide safe and effective non-drug options for mental health care. And what that means is that, so a digital therapeutic is a clinically evaluated, is clinically evaluated software that leads to health outcomes. So what that means is that our digital therapeutics are backed by an extensive um, uh, research base. So we have 13 randomized controlled trials on our therapeutics, which is unheard of in the digital therapeutics field and even um, unheard of among some within some for some pharmaceutical drugs as well. Um, we have over 28,000 people who've participated in our um, studies and we have like over 60 publications on our, on our therapeutics. And so we that. have a very, yeah, work. Love it. Exactly. You know, that like, it's all, to me, it's all about the research. It's all yeah. about the clinical evidence because at the end of the day, you can put something out there, but if you can't show that it works, you know, yeah. what use is it? And, you know, not only show that it works, but also show that it's safe and that it won't lead to harm. Um, and so that's the work that big health has really put up into what they're doing up front, so that once we put things on the market, they've already been evaluated for safety and efficacy. And so you got, you guys are targeting anxiety and insomnia as like the biggest ones for right now. And they each have um, like a different app. And what are those names? Yeah. So we have Sleepio for insomnia. That was our first digital therapeutic. It's been around for about 10 years. And um, it is basically the translation of cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia into a digital format. Um, and uh, so what it does is that because um, digital therapeutics are fully automated. So ours are purely software. There's no therapist involved. There's no human being involved. Um, yet we're able to deliver the therapy, cognitive behavioral therapy, um, effectively at scale and consistently, which leads us to over 70% of people who use our therapeutics getting better and actually getting to non-clinical levels of symptoms. And so Sleepio really focuses on insomnia. It focuses on all the tools and techniques that have been um, shown to work for treating insomnia. And then once we translated it into the digital format, we actually study within that digital format, whether it's working and leading to outcomes. Um, so that's Sleepio. And so that's available via desk desktop and app. And, um, and then I'll say a little bit more about how we get our therapeutics out to people in a bit. But Daylight is our other therapeutic, which is for generalized anxiety and worry. And that therapeutic is very similar to Sleepio overall in terms of it's fully automated. Um, but with Sleepio and Daylight, you have sort of an animated expert guide who takes you through. So you kind of have like an animated therapist. It uses AI and um, uh, you know screening measures to personalize the um, each session or each module to the individual. Um, and Daylight is super cool. We partnered with um, experts from Radiolab and Pixar to create like a really engaging um, animated experience. And so some of the characters or monsters might look a little familiar to people who, you know, are into Pixar. And then we had um, actually one of the producers from Radiolab is the voice of the digital therapist in um, Daylight. Yeah. 
So very cool and very engaging. And I, I think sometimes people think about digital mental health solutions as kind of like, oh, I'll go in and like watch a video or a lecture and read and, you know, kind of boring, not super engaging, but our therapeutics are very engaging. And it really feels like you're going to a therapist's office to learn skills. So of course it's not, it's, it's, it's recovery oriented. They're not sort of talk therapy oriented, like support oriented, where you go in and talk about your relationship problems. There's a, a, that's really important. But what our therapeutics do is really target these specific mental health conditions and then provide people with the skills and techniques that they need to, and guide them through using those skills to be able to actually address the root problems that are maintaining their mental health condition and then help them get to recovery. So is insomnia considered a mental health condition? Yes, it is. Um, and, you know, it's it's great that you asked that because I think a lot of people don't think about insomnia no, I as didn't. a mental health condition. Yeah. And that's part of the reason why Big Health started with insomnia, because oftentimes people are a lot more comfortable talking about problems with sleep um, or falling asleep than they are talking about, you know, I'm feeling depressed or I'm feeling down or anxious. And so, um, we saw it really having this insomnia digital therapeutic as something that could bring a lot more people into getting sort of treatment for mental health or kind of a foot in the door for them because insomnia or, and we don't even refer to it as insomnia in our therapeutic, we call it poor sleep. Okay. in order to destigmatize that feeling of like, I'm being diagnosed with something. Yeah. And so, um, um, and so we saw that as potentially being something that people would be more willing to engage in because it's a little bit less stigmatized. Um, and, and, and that's absolutely been the case. The other thing about insomnia is that, um, yes, it is a mental health disorder and it's also very co-occurring with a lot of other problems, including mental health, other mental health conditions, as well as chronic health conditions. So things like diabetes and hypertension and cardiovascular disease and and a lot of those chronic illnesses, there's a lot of overlap with insomnia. And so treating insomnia can potentially have an impact um, more broadly on overall health. And now a quick word from our sponsors. Hey Fem fans, did you know that the birth control pill was invented in the 1960s? Well, it's 2021 and we are still taking our daily dose of hormones. It's time for contraception to get an update. Meet Fexi, the first and only FDA-approved hormone-free on-demand contraception vaginal gel. Fexi comes in a box of 12 pre-filled applicators and is applied up to an hour before sex. This innovative solution is brought to you by EvoFem Biosciences, NASDAQ EVFM. EvoFem is developing and commercializing innovative products to address unmet needs in women's sexual and reproductive health, including hormone-free, women-controlled contraception and protection from certain sexually transmitted infections, including chlamydia and gonorrhea. EvoFem recently launched the House Rules campaign with Fexi brand ambassador Annie Murphy, the Emmy award-winning actress from Schitt's Creek fame. Learn more about Fexi at Fexi.com or EvoFem.com. Be sure to check out the House Rules video on YouTube. It is hilarious and amazing. That's Fexi, P-H-E-X-X-I.com. And now back to the interview. What, how do you define insomnia? To me, I'm like, okay, you struggle to go to sleep, but maybe that's not actually a definition. What is insomnia? So the insomnia is a part, the, to get the actual sort of, you know, clinical diagnosis. Um, I can't rattle off the top of my head, all of the symptoms, but it's really basically you're having um, trouble getting a certain amount of sleep for a certain period of time. Mm-hmm. in which you're struggling. So if something happens and you have like a week or two where you're not having great sleep, cause I don't know, let's say you have somebody visiting you from out of town. Mm-hmm. Um, that's not insomnia. Insomnia is really this longer term kind of chronic, um, problem that lasts for a period of time that really interferes in your ability to function. So again, another example, if somebody's getting, I remember president, uh, Clinton at one point was like, I only get four hours of sleep a night. That's all I need. That may be true for some people. That's not insomnia. If it's not negatively impacting your daily functioning, 
Mm-hmm. Um, but if it's in- negatively impacting your daily functioning, then it starts to get into the area of insomnia. Um, so we define it by sort of like how troubled your sleep is and then how much it's affecting your functioning and then how long that has been lasting for you. Um, and so what we do in Sleepio is when people first sign on, they fill out a quiz that's like, what's your sleep score? Mm-hmm. Where you answer a bunch of questions that are based or that are a, a clinically validated screener for insomnia. And then you're given a sleep score. And so anything in our, in our therapeutic, like under five is probable insomnia. And the, those people would benefit from the therapeutic. Um, and so we're able to sort of give people when they, when they use sleep, you'll give them an idea of sort of where, what level, what level their sleep is at, but we don't diagnose or anything like that. Yeah. Do you, does insomnia disproportionately affect women? It does. Yeah. Yeah. Do you know why? Oh, that's a good question. You know, um, I wouldn't be surprised uh, if we don't know why. There's a lot. There's a lot of things you're like disproportionately affects them. Not sure why. So yeah, cool. I mean, you know, I certainly have, um, you know, speculations. Uh-huh. Um, but you know, I think um, there are a lot of additional. So when I think about mental health, I really think about stress as as being one of the main drivers of mental health mm-hmm. conditions. Mm-hmm. Um, stress that gets to past a point. Uh, of one being able to cope. Mm -hmm. Right. So I think that women oftentimes in our society and like, you know, I'm not even bringing intersections in here, but women of all ages, races, genders, all items are all ages, races, sexual orientations take on a lot of caregiving responsibilities, whether that's for children or aging parents, um, uh, have to do a lot more of the sort of housekeeping kinds of work and childcare. They also have the invisible kind of emotional labor that they experience. And so women are more likely to experience those things than men, um, even if they're working. So even if a mom is a working mom, she's still oftentimes the majority of the time, women still take on the majority of the caregiving responsibilities, even if they're working. And so I think because of a lot of those stressors, um, they can lead to disruptions in sleep. Um, and we know that some of the things that maintain poor sleep are things like some of the, the, the sort of what our minds are doing when we're trying to go to sleep. Mm-hmm. So for a woman, if she has to meet a deadline, she has to make sure she makes the parent-teacher conference, get her kids to school on time, make sure they have lunches, make doctor's appointments, you know, make sure groceries are, are gotten for the day. You know, I'm talking really about a mom here. Um, when she lays down to go to sleep at night, she's got all these things running through her head of like, I have to do this, I have to do this, I have to do this. And so, you know, that can really disrupt sleep. Um, And then there may also be some biological aspects, you know, of sort of that also may disrupt sleep in different ways. That's not my area of expertise, so I'm not even going to go there. (laughs) But um, I think just thinking from the standpoint of stress, you know, understand the ways in which women tend to be under more stress. And then if we think about women of color, for example, we get that even more heightened. Um, And so, you know, we see a lot of disparities, racial and ethnic disparities in poor sleep as well. Mm. Is that something that is, um, you know, we notice there's a lot of discrimination in women's health around not believing women's pain. And so do we find that um, like women of color are told like, oh, you can't sleep. That's like not real. Or, you know, are women of color a little uh, more hesitant to bring up their sleeping patterns or things around that? That's a great question. Um, I don't know if I've seen any research around whether um, women of color are more hesitant to bring up issues with sleep with their doctors, um, but there is o- there are overall patterns of um, disparities or disproportionate sort of um, uh, prescribing and um, support for um, women of color um, for their problems that they bring up. So whether it's pain, whether it's sleep, whether it's depression, whether it's anxiety, Black women are less likely to be um, uh, provided like a referral or um, a prescription for those problems. Um, And and we see that across different racial ethnic groups. so it's not just women, it, it can also be men. Yeah. Uh, and so we definitely see that, um, you know, there, is, there are some problems and some disparities that we need to better uncover and understand um, so that we can get people the help that they need when they need it. Um, 
I think that black women are like are, are less likely than white women to talk about their mental health and bring it up um, or women of color because in many communities of color there is you know stronger stigma around help seeking for mental health problems um, and you know a lot of that is because of ongoing and traditional like distrust in the mental health care system and the healthcare system in general um, there's fears of being labeled with a stigmatizing identity like a mental health condition there are fears about being medicated um, as well um, and so there are a lot of sort of um, there are a lot of fears and uh, uh, lack of trust in the healthcare system among communities of color that also get in the way of people seeking out the help that they need. Mm -hmm. Um, So we know like, for example, like one in four black Americans who need mental health support or help do not receive or only one in four receive it. So three quarters, 75% of black Americans who need mental health support do not get it. Um, And so we see these disparities play out in the real world. Do you think that digital therapeutic is a solution to that disproportionate treatment? Yeah, I think um, digital solutions fill a really um, crucial gap in the mental health care system. So the way the system works right now is that essentially, um, especially since the pandemic, there's a huge demand for mental health support. Mm -hmm. You know, people have been isolated for months and months. Um, People have been experiencing high levels of uncertainty and anxiety around the pandemic, Um, stress about going back to work, about their kids going back to school, Um, you know, even some of the tension within communities around mask mandates and and vaccinations. All of these things um, on top of sort of, you know, what happened after George Floyd's murder and the additional stress that that brought to the surface um, for people of color, especially um, we've seen a really huge increase in demand for mental health care services. But the problem is that we don't have enough actual providers to meet the need. And, and when you so, say providers, I'm sorry to interrupt, but do you mean like therapists and counselors or psych, uh, psychiatrists that prescribe drugs? Everything. All, over, all of it. Everything. Okay. Yep. Uh-huh. Whether it's psychiatrists, um, psychotherapists, you know, counselors, all across the board, we don't have enough people to meet the need. And even as it stands right now, um, clinicians are extremely overburdened. Mm-hmm. Um, they have huge caseloads. And so they're burning out too right? And then we have turnover. So the system as it stands is really not tenable, and it's not going to be able to meet the full need um, of the population. So if somebody wants a mental health appointment, you know, they're likely going to have to wait at least a month or two before they can see someone. But if they need help now, uh, really, they're- you usually do when you're that sad to reach out. Yeah. Yeah. And so, but if they need help now, you know, um, really their only option is to go to their PCP and get a medication. Yeah. Right. Especially when we think about sleep and anxiety, you know, we have these really, um, strong medication, like strong, um, useful tools, but they're not meant to be long-term, you know, they're meant to last maybe a month or two at the most. And then people are supposed to get off of them. But the problem is that if that medication is taken and it's not backed up with some kind of, um, uh, you know, evidence-based intervention, that person is very, is, you know, less than 50% of those individuals recover. Wow. Um, and so that's where we really see this tension. Mm-hmm. So where big health comes in with digital therapeutics and what I think is really, really promising for the field um, and for our ability to really help people is that because they're entirely software-based and don't require human beings yet still lead to these great outcomes, over 70% of people getting better, um, they're highly scalable, right? So just like drugs, you can produce massive amounts of pills and get them to people very quickly. The same with digital therapeutics. You can, you, it's just software. So you can, anyone can download it onto their computer or their um, uh, smartphone and be able to engage. Um, and so that means it's very scalable. You don't have to wait for an appointment. You can access it 24 seven. Um, so it can fit into your lifestyle. Mm-hmm. So other barriers we see to engaging in mental health care are like, you know, scheduling. So if somebody has like a full-time job, you know, you don't necessarily have an hour every week to do a telehealth appointment or drive across town to get to a therapist. Mm-hmm. Um, or if you, you know, aren't sitting at a computer all day, like, you know, and really all you have is your mobile phone, 
Um, you know, you can pick it up out of your pocket, engage in a technique and sort of use it to deal with anxiety in the moment, for example. Mm -hmm. So if you're like about to have a big meeting and you're feeling really overwhelmed and anxious, you can pull out the daylight app, go to one of the techniques, but sort of say how you're feeling. They'll be like, Hey, why don't you try this technique? You can try that technique in the moment and it can help you manage that anxiety in the moment. Mm. Um, and so what these therapeutics do is they're highly scalable. So we can reach a lot of people who aren't in the mental health care system yeah. or who are having a hard time navigating it or who don't want to interact with it because they don't want to talk to a human being about their problems. <laughs> right? They don't yeah. want to share all their personal information with essentially a stranger. So yeah. sometimes it's, it's easier and more appealing to get onto a digital therapeutic where there is no other person and you can just learn the skills that you need to be able to manage whatever condition it is you're, you're, you're struggling with. And I can imagine there's much more negative side effects of taking drugs than there is a digital therapeutic. Can you talk yes. to us about side effects of psychiatric drugs? Absolutely. Yeah. So there are um, significant side effects of psychiatric drugs. So I'll talk about um, in particular hypnotics, which are things like Ambien um, and then benzodiazepines, which are, are um, medications like Xanax. Um, those are very fast acting medications that get you to sleep and get your anxiety down right there in the moment. Mm -hmm. However, they also have the strongest black box warning from the FDA because of their safety profiles. So for example, with Ambien, I think a lot of people have heard like different, like really wild stories about people like being on Ambien, waking up and driving around town and having no memory of it. So that's yeah. kind of an extreme case, but certainly there are, are more common issues with like next day drowsiness. So if you think about somebody who's getting up to work, to, to drive to work, um, to then work in, you know, a, um, on a production line, for example, that person cannot be groggy or it really increases their risks for accidents. And so while it does help that person sleep at night, they're still experiencing that daytime drowsiness. And so that's having an impact on, on them. Um, you know, with benzodiazepines, there are risks for, you know, it can interfere in cognitive you know, abilities, like your ability to think clearly and concentrate can also make you very drowsy, um, can lead to, um, you know, I, I have some, I knew somebody or know someone who took a um, Benz or an anti-anxiety medication and had to sit for 30 minutes for their blood pressure to like recalibrate before they could get up and like go to, go to work. So, you know, there are a lot of side effects to these medications that, um, you know, can be really, um, can be dangerous, but even the common side effects um, that aren't as severe can impact people. Everyone's different, so it may impact everyone differently. And also, you know, the other problem is that people may start taking a medication, experience side effects, and then stop taking it. And then what are their options for dealing with their condition, you know, really starts to um, dwindle. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, what we're able to do on our digital therapeutics through our 13 randomized controlled trials have um, observed zero serious adverse events. And so, you know, our side effect profile is low to minimal. Um, and so, um, so we're able to deliver the scalability and the consistency of drugs without the side effects and downsides of drugs. Yeah. And, you know, we were talking way earlier about like how innovative it was that the VA had a women's only group for yeah. mental health support. What about in uh, clinical trial research for psychiatric drugs? Because we do know that Ambien was being prescribed to women at the dose that men should take. And it led to this giant, I think it was a lawsuit where the, all these women were getting in car accidents the next morning and yep. they figured out that women metabolize Ambien slower. So they yep. need a lower dose, but it took like 20 years to figure that out. Do we have other case studies in mental health where there's a psychiatric drug that, you know, we, has mostly only been tested on men, but then given to women or anything so, like that? So I think it's kind of a common it has been. I don't know if this is changing. I'm not a psychiatrist, so I can only speak so much to sort of the psychiatric um, field and how they're doing clinical trials and pharmaceutical mm -hmm. companies. I think it, it's been a longstanding issue that men are more represented in um, trials of medications. Yeah. And so, you know, that problem in terms of the biological like metabolism and things like that have happened across a lot of different types of medications. Um, and sometimes, you know, because there may not be rep great representation of women in a study, um, then we're not able to see those side effects right off the bat. 
And so then, yeah, it takes years to finally see what's going on because um, you're not in a controlled environment anymore. And once those drugs are out on the market, you're not getting, you know, feedback or measuring outcomes or anything like that, right? In terms of um, where I see it in sort of my arena in clinical psychology um, is that women tend to be overrepresented in studies, maybe Mm -hmm. not overrepresented, but well-represented in studies Mm -hmm. because women tend to be um, actually be uh, at higher risk for many of the mental health conditions that we think about, like depression, anxiety disorders, insomnia. Um, and so women are, are more likely to suffer from those conditions, or at least admit that they're suffering from those conditions mm-hmm. and seek out help. And so we tend to have good representation of women in our studies. Um, but where we see um, poorer representation is really among um, people of color. So we see a lot of studies that are done in predominantly white samples showing the efficacy and effectiveness of things like cognitive behavioral therapy. But we don't know if that therapy is having the same impact in terms of health outcomes for you know, black, a black, black individuals, for example, um, as compared to white individuals. Mm-hmm. And so um, where we're really taking our research at Big Health, and I think where the field is moving, is to really be intentional and in making sure that um, study samples are diverse. And mm-hmm. that way, not only diverse, but like have a, like are representative of the population, mm-hmm. right? So, you know, it's one thing to say it's a diverse, you know, we have five people here, five people there, but like, no, it needs to really represent what, you know, insomnia or anxiety looks like within the general population. And then that way we have enough of an ability analytically to look at whether there are disparities in outcomes. And that's really crucial so that we can then go back to our actual therapeutic or go back to our our treatment or solution and figure out what needs to change in order for this to be Um, just as effective for women as men, or just as effective for people of color as for white individuals. Do you think that big health, because you have so many users, which by the way, how many, do you know how many users y'all have? So we currently cover um, 10 million lives in the U S are covered by their employer to have access. And then we actually just um, uh, uh, the National Health Service in Scotland actually just started covering our therapeutics for the entire population of Scotland. So that's 5 million lives in Scotland. Wow, incredible. Do you think because you have these large data sets now, potentially you can actually even tease apart um, gender and sex specific, you know, treatments that are better for women versus men because of, you know, the data set is based on literally the population using it rather than who we're recruiting to a study? Yeah. And that's a really good point is that who you're recruiting to a study is going to be different from who's going to be using something in the real world. So you really need both forms of research. The kind of lab-based clinical trial research is really efficacy, seeing like, does this work at all Mm -hmm. better than a placebo? But then when you get into the real world, that's when you start looking at effectiveness and and whether this works for everyone. So we've had some research um, done um, with our therapeutic Sleepio um, looking at Um, actually this particular study, um, it was um, published in psychosomatic medicine in 2019, looked at the use of Sleepio and its impact on depression in a large sample of patients in the Henry Ford healthcare system and found that there were no differences in outcomes across age, sex, race, ethnicity, and education. And so that was great. We were really excited to see that. But we do have a lot of real world data. We don't actually collect information about race and ethnicity, um, but we do collect information about um, gender, I believe. And so we could look at some of the, if there are any disparities in terms of gender, in terms of outcomes um, and things like that. Um, absolutely. Cool and project. So, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, it won't be my project, but yeah, maybe somebody will come on one yeah, day. Some, yeah, some PhD student out there, reach out to Big Health. <laughs> exactly. Um, well, Juliet, this has been seriously so much fun. I can continue to talk to you. I have a lot of personal interest in mental health. I'm really open about my own PTSD and you know seasons of sadness or anxiety. Yeah. And so, I mean, this is it's super relevant. We all have this, right? It's yeah. not like uh, I'm being some, you know. I'm such a vulnerable person admitting this. It's like, yeah, no, most of us have these things. Exactly. Um, right. Uh, mm-hmm. We have two last questions that our listeners really love. So the first is we have a lot of university and graduate students and aspiring founders that listen. What's an area in women's health and wellness that still needs innovating? 
Oh gosh, that's a great question. Um, I would say, you know, I'm not going to necessarily say a therapeutic area, but I just think that there needs to be a lot more intentional attention to intersectionalities and understanding the way in which women are going to have different experiences, different stressors, different risk factors um, for any kind of illness, but I'll, I'll stick to mental health based on their experience of their identities. And so really being able to take that into account when we develop interventions. I think really like the area that we need to focus on is, is digital therapeutics because these are solutions that are so highly scalable. And that's what we really need at this point in our system are scalable solutions. And so we need to really make sure that those solutions are really relevant to women by doing user research with women of all different backgrounds and who have other, all different kinds of intersectional identities, um, and also including a range of different backgrounds and identities in our research studies. Um, so I think really here, it's like we have the meat in terms of mental health, like we have the treatments that work, we have the skills that work, but how do we make sure that it's relevant um, for people who have these intersecting identities? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. If, if, Big Health isn't asking about ethnicity or race. How are you providing different treatments because of cultural competency? Yeah, so the way that we think about our therapeutics is that we want to make them as inclusive as possible. So right now we don't have like different versions of our therapeutics for different populations. Okay. We have one version, but what we're doing is more um, intentional user research and um, uh, examining our products to make sure that they're as inclusive as possible. So include examples that are um, relevant to a range of different individuals, um, making sure that the imagery and um, the, you know, what's said and all of those things is really broadly relevant and inclusive. Um, it doesn't make anyone feel excluded or like this is not the right therapeutic for them. Um, so that's really what we're focusing on. Um, and we've developed a, a culturally responsive framework for product development to help guide us in that area. Awesome. Sorry to have jumped back, but I had to ask that oh, one question that came in my mind. Um, the last question we have um, is, what do you think the femtech industry as a whole needs the most right now in order to be successful? I think, uh, you know, this is honestly just sort of a novice opinion, I guess I could say, but <laughs> I think, you know, more awareness around women's health and um, the ways in which women have really been left out of the conversation thus far. I think that if people knew more about the ways in which women have been left out of medical research or, you know, this, like the story about Ambien or um, understood that while women are experiencing the highest rates of a lot of these mental health conditions um, in particular, or even other medical conditions, that they're not being included in the research or in, you know, understanding um, women's actual experiences with their healthcare. And so I think the more awareness we can have, the more personal stories people can share about what they've been through and what needs to change, I think, you know, pulling on that like personal experience is going to be really important in those personal stories. And I think, you know, it makes me think of, um, you know, the LGBTQ plus movement in terms of like, um, you know, the increasing acceptance of, um, of, you know, sexually diverse individuals, because everybody knows someone in their life who is LGBTQ, right? Everyone knows someone in their life who's a woman. Mm -hmm. or who's a girl. And so if we can create these personal stories and get them out there and, you know, massively, then I think there can be more investment and more understanding of what women are going through and more decision to invest in making changes that are going to help women have better experiences in healthcare. Absolutely. And not only to break stigma and potentially find solutions, but literally if we could just talk about menstruation more in the public. Yeah. Like if women didn't have to hide their tampons in their sleeve, feel like yep. they had to, right? Like literally just saying the word menstrual cycle, like a man mentioning periods and not no one flinching, you know, yep. like that, totally. be, that is a huge barrier to any of this moving forward because, you know, we interview people about heavy menstrual bleeding and how it affects women in the workplace because they don't want to say, Hey, I just soaked through another pad. I need to get off zoom for a second and change, right? Like 
men, like a lot of people aren't even knowing about women bringing extra clothes or, you know, their urinary incontinence. And, you know, and it's just like, if we talked about those things, then that's like the first step towards even like talking about solutions for them because we don't even know they're yeah, problems are existing. So a hundred percent. I know. <laughs> Speaking of menstrual cycles, I was talking the other day with, um, or no, I wasn't talking about, I was thinking to myself, cause whenever I, whenever I start my menstrual cycle, I get so exhausted mm-hmm. and I'm like, I need one day off a month that I get to just choose for <laughs> menstrual related purposes. Cause yeah. yeah, but I agree. Like I, I'm very open to talking about those kinds of things, but I think like, and I think that that's part of it is like leaders talking more openly about these things, yeah. thought leaders talking more openly about these things. Um, but also as a society, we need to get more comfortable talking about women's anatomy and what they go through because like, it's just natural. It's biology. You know, there's no need to stigmatize it. So yeah, but it's going to be, it's going to be a road and a a battle, but you know, I'm willing, I'm, I'm ready for it. You and I, here we are. Yeah. Yeah, If you're watching this on YouTube, you'll see my virtual background is vulvas. So uh, I love it. (laughs) We're out here talking about it, doing the work. Well, Julia, thank you so much for your time today. You are amazing. Of course, no problem. It's been such a pleasure talking with you. Thank you for listening to my interview with Dr. Juliette McClendon, the Director of Medical Affairs at Big Health. Did you know that there's actually a strong correlation between hormones and sleep? In fact, when researchers studied the sleep in boys versus girls, there was no difference until puberty started. Then, at different times of the month, women and girls would sleep better or worse depending on where they were in their menstrual cycle. Other big hormonal milestones in a woman's life, such as pregnancy, postpartum, and menopause, also wreak havoc on a regular sleep schedule. Luckily, women now have big health to support them. Big Health Sleepio app is shown to lower health care costs for employers by $1,600 per employee per year. Essentially, tired employees are costing employers thousands in medical expenses. Moral of the story, it pays to invest in employees' health. That's for sure. To learn more about Big Health, go to BigHealth.com. Alrighty, Fem fans, don't forget to make your end-of-year donation at femtechfocus.org. If you donate $100 or more, you'll be sent a donor gift of your choice. Please give the show a five-star review and share it with a friend. Join our virtual community at femtechfocus.org and join the thousands of other Femtech founders, investors, and mentors advancing women's health. While in the virtual community, sign up to be a FemPro member for only $10 a month and get access to the Femtech Institute, a library of Femtech and startup lessons that are sure to help you advance your startup and teach you more about the Femtech industry. Keep an eye out for our monthly Femtech book club and subscribe to our newsletter. Again, please consider making a donation to Femtech Focus end of year's fundraising campaign. We are a 501c3 nonprofit and rely on your donations to operate. Okay, Fem fans, until next time, keep innovating because improving women's health and wellness improves everyone's health and wellness.